Hey, it's Chris Voss, CEO of the Black Swan Group. Today I'm going to discuss the top four no-oriented questions. You will learn how to use them so that you can gain the upper hand in any negotiation. Stay tuned until the end of the video and be sure to like, comment, and subscribe. Now let's get started. Number one, is now a bad time to talk? Look, this is a great way to get started on relearning a lot of your communication skills into the black swan method. And one of the greatest and simplest ways is to start with no oriented questions in place of a question you ask all the time. And a question you ask all the time is, have you got a few minutes to talk? How many phone calls, how many interactions have you started out with? Have you got a few minutes to talk? That's a yes oriented question. We hate yes, we love no. And this is how you begin to make the transition and begin to take power. And I'll explain to you in a little while how just a switch from yes to no can probably increase your close rate at least 23%. So instead of have you got a few minutes to talk, is now a bad time to talk. Now, there are only two answers to this question. This happens all the time. You only are going to get one of two answers. A person is either going to say, no, no, it's never a bad time to talk. What do you got? And you've got their complete attention, which is what you were after to begin with. Or they're going to say, yeah, it is a bad time to talk, but I can talk Tuesday at 2. If it is a bad time to talk, they always give a great time to schedule a call where, again, you've got their undivided attention. Now, what's the problem with, have you got a few minutes to talk? Ask yourself, what do you feel when somebody asks you, have you got a few minutes to talk? All these things go through your mind. Uh, what do you want to talk about? Uh, do I want to talk to you? Um, how long is a few minutes? The point is, and when all these things are going through someone's mind, they're not listening to you. So when someone says, no, no, it's never a bad time to talk to you, they've completely cleared their mind and they're prepared to talk to you. Now, what if they just say yes and they don't give you a good time to talk? I've seen people ask this on LinkedIn all the time. This is insane. How stupid is that? Do you really want to talk with someone when they've just told you it's a bad time to talk, you really want to keep them on the phone with you while they've just said they don't want to talk and it is a bad time to talk? That sounds ridiculous, doesn't it? Speaking of ridiculous, number two, no oriented question. Is it a ridiculous idea? Now we ask this instead of, is it a good idea? We ask this instead of, would you like to? Is it a ridiculous idea? This is a question I use with Jack Welch, very generous man based on my interaction with him, to get him to agree to come and speak at the negotiation course I was teaching at the University of Southern California at the time. I go to a book signing. There are a long line of people in, in line trying to get Jack Welch to sign their book. Jack and Susie Welch are out on a book tour on their most recent book at the time, The Real Life MBA. They're signing books in L.A. I want to go and get Jack to speak at the class. They're hustling people through the line. They're doing everything they can to keep you from talking to Jack while you go through the line for a whole variety of reasons. You've got maybe 30 seconds from the moment that you walk up to the moment they want you to walk away. This is not time to engage in a negotiation or a conversation. 
I walk up to Jack Welch. He has no idea who I am. I'm just another person at the book signing. And I say, is it a ridiculous idea for you to come and speak at the negotiation course that I teach at USC? Now he looks up and to the left and he gets this hideous look on his face. And he looks furious. And he just freezes with this look on his face. I get horrified. I'm afraid I've made him so angry he's had a stroke or something. He's getting ready to die. Finally, he looks down at me and says, this is my personal assistant's name. This is a Twitter account that we use to communicate with her. I will call her and tell her who you are. I think we're going to be in Los Angeles in the fall. If we are, we'll come in and speak at your course. This is one of the great things that a no-oriented question does. It triggers follow-on thought. While Jack was looking up and to the left, he was thinking through implementation details before he responded to me. This is one of the crazy things, the crazy advantages of no-oriented questions. Number three, are you against? We use this instead of, are you in favor of? Would you like to do? Does this sound like a good idea? Are you against? And then name whatever it is. One of the times this worked great was we were teaching the Black Swan team, myself and Brandon, we were teaching a Black Swan method to some people in the healthcare industry. One of the women in the room who worked on behalf of this healthcare company had been trying to get the, a head nurse in a particular hospital to implement a program. The head nurse had been adamantly against it. She was always saying no, 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 no. This is one of the things that's interesting. People get into the mode of always saying no, and it's their automatic response. This is why no warranted questions works. She wanted to test the idea to see if we get no oriented questions to work. She walks out of the room. She calls the head nurse and says, are you against? And then asked her to implement the program that she'd been trying to get the head nurse to say yes to for weeks. When she simply went from a yes response to a no response, are you against? The head nurse said, no, I'm not against it. And they made the agreement on the spot. She turned around and walked back into the room and said, you guys are not going to believe what just happened. She went out and got an agreement on the spot with a no that she hadn't been able to get previously for weeks. Now, let's do something crazy. Let's put the two of these things together. You'll find that people suffer all human beings suffer from something known as decision fatigue. They can only make so many decisions in a given day. And they're beginning to run out of energy for decision making sometime after lunch in the afternoon and they begin to get drained. So a couple of years ago I had an intern that only asked me what and how questions because he was horrified at doing something wrong all the time. He was just afraid to make a mistake. And he'd ask me what to do or how to do something in the middle of the afternoon. And I'd be like, I, I, I don't know, leave me alone. And finally I told him, any time after 1 o'clock on any given day, don't ask me any questions unless the answer is no. And I'll be able to think it through. And then he could ask me at the end of the day, look, I'm going to do this. Do you want me to do this? And I'd be like, no, 
do this. And I'd give them an answer. I could give them direct guidance straight away. People can answer no-oriented questions even when they're decision fatigued. Now, how can I prove this to you? Several years ago, I had the pleasure of meeting Robert Herzevich. Robert Herzevich, very generous guy. Got introduced via an email, mutual friend. We go to lunch, steakhouse in LA. He happened to have an office just down the street from where I was living at the time. And it was my favorite kind of lunch. Free, he paid. Number one indicator of how generous a guy is. Number two, I got 90 minutes with him. Second indicator of how generous a guy was and is. So at the time, we're getting ready to teach the Black Swan Method at uh, a live training session in New York. I offer him a free ticket. Now, I don't expect him to come. I think he's going to send one of his top guys. I want them learning the Black Swan Method. He looks back at me and says, how many can we buy? Another indicator of a generous guy. So we're going back and forth with his team over how many tickets they're going to buy. Brandon, Brandon Voss, the president of the Black Swan Group, calls me on the phone and says, we can't get a commitment out of Herjavec's people, and we're getting ready to sell the event out. Our tickets are expensive, and they sell out because the Black Swan Method is that good. People want the value. Brandon says to me, if you don't get Herjavec to commit to the tickets now, then we're going to be sold out by tomorrow morning. He's not going to get any, and I'm going to sell the free ticket that you promised him. Now, I'm in Los Angeles at the time. Brandon's on the East Coast, which means he's got a three-hour advantage, or we've got a three-hour disadvantage in Los Angeles, and it is 4.30 in the afternoon. Now, one of the additional problems is we got to get this executed because by the time the business day starts in L.A., it's three hours into the business day on the East Coast. It's almost lunchtime. i got to execute this now. Remember, you don't get in life what's fair. You get what you negotiate. If you want to become a better negotiator, click the link in the description below. I send an email to Robert Herjavec at 5.03 in the afternoon. Remember the decision fatigue issues? When was the last time you tried to get an answer out of somebody after 5 o'clock at night? I send him a two-line email. Number one, is it a ridiculous idea for you to commit to three tickets to the event now? Second line, are you against paying for them before the business day starts in New York tomorrow? That email goes out of 5.03. I get a response at 5.04. No, we're prepared to commit to three tickets now. No, it's not a problem my assistant will get back to you within the hour and we will pay for the tickets. The tickets are paid for and it's all wrapped up at 5.23 in the afternoon. From 5.03 to 5.23. No oriented questions to close the deal. Number four, which is also the number one way to restart communications. Have you given up on 
X and then name whatever it is. Send that out in a one-line email with this in the subject and if you put anything in the body put only that in the body. Send it out as a text message by itself word for word. This is one of these things in a black swan method that you have to execute word for word. I once had a woman say you know I tried that have you given up line and it didn't work. And I said, all right, well, really? Okay, possible. Tell me word for word what you said. And she said, well, you know, I thought the way you worded it was a little harsh. So instead of saying, have you given up on, I said, should we give up on having lunch to discuss the project? And I thought to myself, I, you know, I wouldn't answer that either. Here's a side note. In your choice of pronouns, you'll notice that a lot of times people default and say we when they mean you. A couple of years ago, I was talking with Brandon about a project that wasn't getting done. And I called him on the phone. I said, look, we got a problem. And he said, you know, stop interrupting me with that we stuff. You mean I got a problem. Let's be honest. Change your we's to you when you mean you. The other side will actually appreciate it. But this is a common problem that people do in their pronouns. Be really careful. If you mean you, say it. People know the disguised we and they're not fooled by it. It actually makes them feel very uneasy. Have you given up on? Now, context is important. This has to be something that's ongoing. I got to tell you, the Black Swan Group, I get emails all the time. First time email, somebody says, have you given up on doing business with me? Well, since I never started, I couldn't have given up. So I take this as a sign of a manipulative person. Already, I don't want to do business with them. Many times, just to make the point, I'll fire back, yes. Because it was so out of context. So this is context driven. This has to be something that they have been working on for a while. Now we really got onto this line in a black swan team a number of years ago when we were teaching negotiation at Georgetown. And one of the students in the class, and I mentioned this in the book, never split the difference. Brilliant student at Georgetown. He's working on a Republican fundraising committee. This was several elections back. I think it was the second Obama election. And they're doing dialing for dollars at night. What's dialing for dollars at night? They call people on the phone. They ask them three yes-oriented questions. Supposed to be tied down. Supposed to be the yes momentum. Then you ask for the money. Theoretically, the way this nonsensical theory works is that people got to say yes to the last question. Everybody's been hustled and conned by this. Believe me, they don't have to say yes to the last question. The idea that each yes is a microagreement or a tie down is nonsense. However, it's really common in the real world, and a lot of people do this because much of the real world is monkey see, monkey do, and this is caught on. Well, he goes in that night and he changes the yes oriented questions to no oriented questions. And the first question was, of course, would you like to take the White House back in November? So he changes it to the no-oriented question, have you given up on taking the White House back in November? They ran the no-oriented script side-by-side side to the yes-oriented script that night in the morning. 
they had a 23% higher success rate with the no-oriented script, 23%. What happened with the committee that he was working on? They came in that morning and they looked at the results and they said, don't ever do that again. That was a fluke. That's not the way we do things around here. Have you given up on? It's got to be driven by something that someone has been working on. Here's something else that's important for you to remember in this. If they've gone silent on you, if they're ghosting you, and this is the response for when someone has gone silent on you, when they're ghosting you, this one line will restart your communication. It will work and it is a one-shot reset. What's important to remember? Remember this phrase. The system you're employing is perfectly designed to give you the outcome that you've achieved. Your communication system with the person who's ghosting you is perfectly designed to get them to ghost you. You cannot go back to the same approach that you had that led up to them going silent on you, them ghosting you. You cannot. I gave this advice one time to a woman who's selling an investment fund, shares in an investment fund. She was having trouble getting a man to get back to her that she wanted to make the investment. And I said, look, send, send this out, send this text out, he'll respond. She's like, fine, you know, he's not getting back to me, but I got nothing to lose, so I'll go ahead and try it anyway. The guy responded, and she went right back into her sales pitch that led him to ghost her in the first place. And that was the last time she ever heard from him. So don't go back to the communication system that you were using. Now, why did they ghost you? Because the communication was ineffective. People continue to communicate if it's effective, if it's working for them, if it's moving their agenda, it's, if it's helping them get to their goals. So one of two things has happened in the midst of this communication. Number one, they've lost all power and influence on their side of the table. They're embarrassed to tell you about it. You have to take that into consideration. Number two, you're not listening. You're pitching, you're selling. If you were listening to them, they'd still be in touch with you. If you were listening to them, you'd have heard the hints, you'd have perceived the signals that they were sending out to you about whatever the problems were, that they're losing power and influence in their company on their side of the table or that you're not listening. You have to take this into account before you restart the communication. The most likely thing for you to do after you've restarted the communication is to summarize the situation from their perspective. You want to reestablish productive communication you want to establish rapport. You want to get them bonded back to you to continue to find out what's going on. You've got to get a that's right out of them. Do a great summary. Summarize the communication from their perspective. Summarize the negatives. Stay away from your sales pitch. Stay away from your value proposition. Get a that's right out of them, and you will have fully reset the communication.
This is basically it's a bear trap at the end of that rainbow if you're on the yes path. And so what's our alternative? Our alternative is knowing to questions. All of you that, that have read the book have seen this. You have some feel for it. And so real quick, I'm going to share a short story with you. Some of you may have even heard this on Chris's keynotes about dealing with Jack Welsh. So Jack's in LA several years ago while Chris is living in the area. He and I at the time were actually teaching a negotiation course at the Marshall School of Business at USC for the, uh, the graduate program. He goes to a book signing to see Jack. Oh, and if you don't know who Jack Welch is, obviously he's an author. We're talking about Chris going to a book signing to get an author from him. But he was a huge businessman. He's not with us anymore, but he ran GE in the 80s and 90s, turned it into one of the fastest growing companies in the United States. He was actually named manager of the century in 1999, which I don't know if there's a higher accolade than that. And he, he developed this rank and yank system at GE and, and was also adopted in many other places in the corporate world, which essentially means you don't hit certain standards, you're gone. There is no second chance. You got a standard to meet. You don't get there. We're going to roll you out and bring in somebody that can't get the job done. So very big guy, philanthropist, author, a lot of people look up to him and, and, and follow his doctrines as a businessman, even still today. So Chris is at this signing. He wants to see if Jack will come teach at his class at USC. Now, if you know anything about book signings, you got about five seconds with the author. Security's job is to keep people moving through. Chris doesn't have time to have a full conversation with Jack. Do an accusations audit. Do a summary, label and mirror his responses. He doesn't have time to do any of that. He's got to, he's got to do a quick hitter, and he's got to be emotionally intelligent, and he's got to do it now. And so he walks up to Jack, and if you've heard the story, you know that he says, is it ridiculous for you to come speak at my class at USC? And as the story goes, Jack gets a very intense look on his face, looks up and to the left and just kind of freezes with this very angry look. In that moment, Chris thinks to himself, I just killed Jack Welsh. He's an old guy and he's so angry at my question that he's actually having a stroke in front of me and he's gonna drop dead and security's gonna drag me out of here by my ankles and I'm going to jail. And after about 10 seconds of this intense look, Jack looks back at Chris and he says, here's a Twitter handle that's private that only people use internally in my company. My assistant actually runs this as me. I'm going to let her know that you're going to reach out to her through this Twitter handle so that we can keep in touch. And I think we're supposed to be back in L.A. in the fall. This is sometime in the spring of that year. He says, if we're back in L.A. at that time frame, I will come speak at your class at USC. Now, the long of it is, Jack wasn't in fact back in the fall, very busy guy, couldn't make it, so it didn't happen. However, he got the commitment in the moment. Why is that? Obviously, the no oriented question. But what happened? What happened in Jack Welsh's brain in that moment that made it so easy for him to answer? And the crazy thing about knowing to questions, and I wish we could point to a specific brain science study 
that lays this out. Maybe they will be soon, right, with fMRI machines and this wonderful technology and being able to plug electrodes into people's brains. I'm sure there'll be a study at some point that explains how this works. What we've observed as negotiators, as content experts, as former hostage and crisis negotiators, when you allow someone to say no to you, and in fact, when you aim at someone saying no to you, it clears their thought process. As a lot of you have thrown into the chat, some of the problems with yes, because yes makes people nervous, the instant reaction is, how do I defend myself in this moment? And that clutters up the brain. It doesn't allow us to be cognitively flexible when we're worried about how we have to defend ourselves. And so he confronted Jack over a very specific want, did it without a confrontational reaction, and cleared Jack's thought process to lay out the implementation of how it would work all at the same time with a very simple question. And so you can take our word for it, or you can do what we're going to implore you to do as a result of this class and our next two. Go out and start executing this stuff if you're not already. If you are executing this stuff already, then you should start developing your go-to list. If you listen to anything we've talked about before, you know we talk a lot about go-to labels. The reality is when the heat is on, you fall to your highest level of preparation. And as a result of that, we like to have go-to lists of every single skill that we talk about. And we keep that stuff near to us, right? Laminate it, put it in your jacket pocket, make a list, put it on your desk. We even had a, a good client and now friend of ours sent us a picture of his office and he had what we would refer to as situation boards set up in different frames all over his office that had lists of skills that he executes on a daily basis in his negotiations. So it's going to help you to have a cheat sheet. Cheat sheet never get beat. That's what we like to say. And so that should apply to the Norrington to questions as well. As you can see on the slide here, on the left, we have our classic yes questions. On the right, we have our classic versions of how to begin a Norrington to questions. Would it be impossible? Is it a bad idea? Am I out of line? Is it, would it be out of the question? And so... What I'm going to ask from you now, here's a chance to get some more coaching from Sandy. This slide is, an, is, is a more extensive list of classic yes questions that everybody asks. I'm guilty of asking them in the past. People on our team were even guilty of asking these things in the past. And so pick one or two of the questions off this list and please translate it to a no-oriented question in the chat. And the other thing about this, this is actually a fairly decent prep model. Any yes question can easily be translated to a no question. A good way to do it, 10, 15 minutes before you walk into a negotiation, you want to work on your no-oriented questions. Take a piece of paper, draw a line down the center. 
on the left, ask, put the questions that you would normally want to say, have them say yes to. Don't you agree that this is going to help your company? Don't you want to sign this contract? Don't you want to move forward so we don't waste any more time? Whatever. Draw that line, and on the right, just simply put the no-oriented translation of what that is. And that's a really good way to start getting yourself acclimated, starting to develop your go-to list, as it were. And so last thing I want to mention about this, something we highlight in the book, but it's not laid out here in the slides, is simply the no-oriented question that's phrased, are you against? And this, if you're in any sort of sales role, maybe sales isn't necessarily attached to your title, but there is a sales element to what you do. And for all intents and purposes, we're always selling ourselves, right? I mean, we all know that inherently. And so this are you against has actually shown to be a tremendous closer in the sales world or the closing world, right? However you like to look at it and simply are you against moving forward? Hi, Nicole. Hi, Chris. Uh, Chris, it was great hey, meeting Charles, you. How are you. I'm well, thank you. It was great meeting you the other week, and I loved your story about meeting Jack Welch and uh, asking him to come speak at your uh, class. I believe was at SC um, by framing yeah. it in a no question. I want you to know I've been using that with my girlfriend. I've been using the "Would it be ridiculous?" or would I be out of line if I asked for this? And I wanted to know if you had any other good no questions to ask that are really yes questions. You know, I don't, I, I don't, all of them. I mean, I don't ask any yes questions. Uh, I, ju I just know that people, it works better. It hits the brain better. So, you know, uh, is now a bad time to talk? Um, is it a ridiculous idea? Have you given up on? Um, is it a bad idea? Are you opposed? Do you disagree? I mean, with with the slightest amount of practice, you could switch any yes question into a no question, and it it just works. It works better across the board. I mean, we don't. Nobody in my company asks yes questions. Nobody, nobody asks. Uh, have you got a few minutes to talk? Nobody says do do you agree? It just across the board. It makes it safer for people to answer. And also, the real issue always is, if there are problems, I want you to feel free to tell me what the problems are. And you're going to feel free to tell me those problems after no. So, with just a little bit of practice, uh, and it takes practice. You know, all of these are, are, you know, get your practice reps in, in the low-stakes conversations. And pretty soon, the stuff starts starts flowing out of your mouth i'm uh, a couple of weeks ago i'm i'm in a uh i'm making a pitch in a hotel for a room upgrade and i don't got any room upgrades but i've worked so much on no oriented questions and because like i'm pushing this guy hard for something extra that i'm not paying for and finally he i says well is it ridiculous for you to make it up for me at the bar and he's like he's like no no and he goes and gets a bunch of free trick drink coupons for the bar. So, you know, no oriented questions is a great one to practice. You'll find it'll bail you out when you're trying to get free drinks. <laughs> Love that. Thanks. So, um, because you can use the, I mean, there are a few phrases that are really go-to for no oriented questions. 
So would it be impossible to, would it be ridiculous? Would it be um, out of the question? Like those are three really good go-tos. Um, if you want to make it a little bit more specific, so for example, like um, say that you have to move a meeting, like this happens to me a lot, right? Um, then you say, would it throw off your whole, like, I know you're already busy, would it throw off your whole schedule if we move this meeting? So it's, it's almost this opportunity, again, to express understanding, to express like, hey, I know you're busy, this might throw everything off. So you can even phrase the question in that way, right? Or something I really like to do is, would it be really difficult to, or would it be bothersome to? So like you can use whatever you think like, well, they might feel like this is annoying or they might feel like um, this is going to be really problematic for them. And so then you say that in the in that knowing question, it's almost like a way that you can kind of address whatever it is that they're going to feel within the knowing question, essentially. So it makes it feel kind of gracious because you've thought about this. You've thought about how is this going to impact you? instead of just making an ask and making sure they do it, you're thinking about, okay, this is going to impact this person in, in this way. Mm -hmm. And you express that, and then they're even more likely to want to do what you're asking, essentially. It also, depending on the kind of question that you're asking, and some of the things that Davey was just saying kind of fall under this, makes the other side feel like the decision to do the action was theirs. So if you, and you can double whammy them with an accusations audit, um, yeah, you may think I'm I'm being so irresponsible with my time and my schedule. Would it be impossible or would it put you in a bad position if we could move the meeting to three o'clock? And then they're going to say, oh, no, no, it's okay. We, we can move the meeting. It's going to feel like the decision was theirs because you, you basically asked that question <clears throat> in a way that it feels like they can decide whether or not they can make the movement. But because it was kind of geared at a no-oriented question, it makes them feel like they were nice enough to take that action for you and it was their decision. Yeah, okay, like so the ball was in their court, they're doing this for you. Yes. And it, it, it lets is, them feel like they're being nice. Exactly. And that is huge when you're talking about um, where you stand psychologically with somebody because the more you make somebody feel like they are in control, the better they feel even when they're not in control, because you know you're asking the questions in such a way that you are literally in control, but you're letting them feel like they have the control. Um, so that that does do something for people in their brains. So it's just something to really keep, you know, in the forefront of your mind when you're about to ask someone a yes question that you want a yes to, take two seconds to frame it so that they can say no, but still mean yes to you. Yeah, exactly. Then they feel like they're the ones that are that they're maintaining power, essentially. Yes, because no is a powerful thing to be able to say to someone. Why do we use the no-oriented question? We use the no-oriented question because it protects the autonomy of the other side. People know when you're driving them for a yes, and most of the time they resent it. The people on the globe are yes addicted and yes battered at the same time. We're seduced by the yes. When we hear it, we get all giddy inside. And um, when it's used against us, we resent it because it, we feel like our ability to say no has been encroached upon. But they're very effective at breaking the impasse, helping people to think clearly, 
or getting them to respond to you when they've dropped off the face of the earth. Uh, some examples of no oriented questions appear on the right side of the screen. And these are all alternatives to the yes oriented questions that are on the left side of the screen. Would it be ridiculous? Is it out of the question? Am I out of line? Would it be off putting? Have you given up on? Are you against is also one that I like to use quite frequently. Are you against X? Chris, did you have something or are you spazzing? We're having my favorite no answer question. Which is? Is it be ridiculous? Oh, is it be ridiculous? Yeah, we got rid of that. <laughs> Once we got you through grammar school, we felt it was no longer necessary to keep that up. <laughs> Thank you. All right. Um, so, yeah, that's any any question where you're driving for, yes, a little bit of mental power can be changed to a no-oriented question. And I am continually amazed at what people will agree to by saying the word no that they would never agree to or say or say yes to. And, and this is not a heckle, but it's one more I want to throw because this is particularly in, in dealing with the bosses. Guys, we have counseled people to say to a boss, do you want me to fail? And it has broken impasse and uncovered answers and reoriented the negotiations. And no oriented questions originally started, the first trigger point on this came from a woman negotiating with her boss. And she ultimately completely got her way by starting with a no oriented question. So understand, do you want me to fail? Do you want this to fail? is a legitimate question to a boss who has given you an impossible task. The bad news if they've given you an impossible task, it's an impossible task in point of fact. The good news if they've given you an impossible task, they think a lot of you and they are looking for you to save the day. So no oriented questions with the bosses are very effective things. For sure. I want to talk about some of your open-ended questions. I think these are really powerful. So the, the way that why questions are accusatory, mm -hmm. but how questions invite people to do the thinking for you and explain that, like the, explain the power of how. Yeah, it, well, it, uh, to use Kahneman's phraseology, it triggers slow thinking or in-depth thinking. You know, because it's logistical. Uh, yeah. You know how how largely is implementation or logistical? Is another, uh, uh, how's this going to get done? Um, it feels deferential. So I'm going to kill these motherfuckers if you don't give me twenty million dollars right now. And you say, "How am I supposed to do that?" Go to the bank. Call the president. Do whatever you need to do. This is somebody's life. Give me the twenty million right now. How am I supposed to do that right now? You want me to call the president? You want me to go to the bank? Do they not just keep How screaming? Am I to yes, do that that's right exactly now? what I want you to do. All they got to do is come down a little at a time. Now I'm not resisting. I'm an implementation. And it triggers in-depth thinking. And in point of fact, those are legitimate questions. You know, the, the, ask a question that the, whether the other side likes it or not, 
is actually a legitimate question. It's not resisting. I'm asking in a way where I'm deferential. I'm not saying I ain't doing it. I'm asking for your help. Now, how you respond to that is going to tell me where this is really going. You know, there's a 93% success rate means 7% of the time it ain't going to go anywhere. This is nothing but bad. I got to know which one I'm dealing with. And so, you know, my how and what questions early on and occasional, the, the strategical use of why, surgical use of why, I got to diagnose what I'm really dealing with. And I got to do it in a way where you're not feeling like you're being diagnosed. But, you know, because I, I got to do everything I can do to avoid triggering you, but I got I to gotta get a diagnostic on what I'm actually dealing with to begin with. And how do you handle telling people no in a way that doesn't shut them down? Yeah, you know, uh, a friend of mine here in town, Ned Coletti, used to be the GM for the Dodgers. Brilliant negotiator. Good guy. Like him a lot. Ned is still around. I'm still affiliated with the Dodgers. First year he was uh, GM, they went from worst to first. That's a sign of a capable GM. Okay. You know, and, and we were talking about this one time, and Ned said that someone had taught him to let out no a little at a time. I'm like, that's exactly what we're doing. Like, you have to be able to say no to people. What your job is to not let them get blindsided by it, where they feel like they were clotheslined and caught off guard. So you let it out a little at a time. And how am I supposed to do that is really a way to get the other side thinking about the difficulty of the situation, about the difficulty of the ask, and it's the first way to Why start letting know. Why can't you just out. say that's really going to be hard? Further down the line, we're going to get there. But first, I really kind of need the how question is designed to get stop you in your chat, your tracks, and get you thinking. It's calibrated, which is why we call them calibrated questions, to start to trigger a state change in the other side. Now we got to let out a little more no. In a little firmer way as we go along, then we got we, we got a whole succession of ways to eventually, ultimately, if forced into it, to say no. Which then also is not no. It's no. But we don't need to go. Like if, if you hear no from me or my side, we've been hinting at it for a while. So you're not going to be feel blindsided by it you, you're gonna yeah, and we're gonna continue to demonstrate collaboration because i you know i don't want to go all the way to now if we're talking there's a reason for us to talk the adversary is the situation so if there's a reason for us to collaborate and talk where we can both be better off i also don't want to let out no too quickly because there might be a better way and i want to discover that so let's let me let me let me start telegraphing that there are problems here, inviting collaboration, see if we can tease out a solution before the thing goes down the tubes. Have you ever had a negotiator or a um, hostage taker give you an answer to something that you were like, I actually don't have a rebuttal to that. We should try that. <laughs> Not yet. Yeah, I was I, I'm running these scenarios through my head and I'm like, what would I do if they like offered a suggestion? I'm like, yeah, like that actually sounds Maybe we should try that. <laughs> like, how do you, because there are scenarios where you end up paying apparently $20 million. Well, we, well first of all, it wasn't a U.S. that paid that or anybody on the U.S. side. So the U.S. would never do that. Uh, correct. 
The U.S. does not pay ransom. Now, that doesn't mean that there can't be bait money go downrange. Meaning you give them money that you know you're going to take back? Or you're going to trace. Like, Like, money is ridiculously easy to trace. Like, ridiculously easy. And it can be a very smart move. It's like eject, injecting dye into their financial circulatory system. Mm. Where are they buying weapons? Who are they paying safe houses for? They got a larger criminal network. Terrorists are not supported by the Red Cross. They're oh. supported by a larger criminal network of illegal arms dealers and illegal this and illegal that. And you want to know who they're buying their guns from. And the best way to find out who they're buying their guns from is to give them some money that you could trace and find out where it goes. Follow the money, as they said a long time ago in, in the Watergate scandal. That's a tremendous investigative tool. Mm. And if you, you know, there was a, uh, in 2000, that was exactly what happened because there was a criminal gang out of Ecuador that had been taking hostages on oil platforms every year about October. And they were a combination of former terrorists and criminals. And so the third time it went down, a payment was made because they, if they had assaulted the, the oil platform, they'd only got the kidnappers who were the low end of the food chain. But they made a payment and they ended up dismantling the gang in its entirety and they never hit again. Oh. Over 50 people were rounded up. Because they were tracking the money. Tracking the money. The whole organization was dismantled as a result of the ransom payment. So it became a great way to take out a criminal organization that had been operating completely freely prior to that. And a rescue would have only taken out the bad guys on a platform. It would not have taken out the whole organization. They took the whole thing down, and these guys never resurfaced as an organization again. So going back to the magic words that you use as a negotiator, why is getting them to say no more important or better, much better, if I remember your words correctly, yeah. than yes. Yeah, it's it's shocking. Um, and a friend of mine that I'm flattered that we're acquainted, Andrew Huberman, Huberman Labs podcast. Know him well. Amazing guy. Brilliant neuroscience stuff. Uh, met him for the first time recently. We're sitting down at lunch, and I'm like, all right, so I don't know what the neuroscience behind this is, but people feel safe and protected when they say no. They feel better. They're more likely to collaborate. And then plus what we that's know. so weird. What, the other thing that's crazy that we know for sure is, like when you're exhausted mentally, you could still say no. Mm. But yes is hard. Yes is hard or even as answering how. Like if, if, you, uh, if, if you're tired, and one of my colleagues did this to me recently, and I could instantly tell the difference. They wanted to follow up with me when I was exhausted, and I knew that if they'd asked me, what are you thinking, what, great question, triggered deep thinking, I didn't have the mental gas in the tank to answer that question. But they answered me a question that was built around no, and I went boom, 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 boom. I laid it all out. And I was like, wow. I don't, I don't know how that happens. <laughs> I just know it does. And we've seen time after time, if I need to close a deal, at all, especially if I know that you're tired, instead of saying, do you agree, do you want to do this, are you in favor of this, I say, do you disagree, is this a bad idea, are you against this, is this ridiculous? And you'll either go, no, let's do it, or you go, no, 
but here are the problems, and you'll lay them all out for me. And feel no obligation, which means you're going to lay them out to me honestly. Like if I say, do you agree with this? You're going to afraid to say yes, but here are the problems, because you feel that yes is an obligation. And you're going to be worried about digging yourself deeper in by saying anything after that. But having said no, you feel you have no obligation. I think it might be that simple. So you will, you will lay the rest of the stuff out, not being worried about digging yourself into a hole. It's really interesting that some part of our brain is tracking the, even though it's not like obviously a contract, but that some part of our brain is like, yeah, we've just agreed to that. And now I have a sense of obligation and they have the right to like take me to task on it. It's right. very interesting. Yeah. Yeah. And we stumbled over that one by, by accident. And it is just the, the good and the bad about getting people to say no is it makes such a huge difference in all interactions that sometimes that's the only thing somebody learns. And we're like, look, there is so much more here. Like, I know you're making a lot more money now. And you're doing better than anybody that you see around you. But you're not doing as good as you could be doing, and you cannot stop there. But a lot of people, I see it all the time. They just learn how to trigger no instead of yes. And they're instantly, significantly more successful. And they quit there. They don't keep going. All right. What then, if you were going to bring this all together, if no is that first bit that shows people like, whoa, you can frame this in a new way. What are the, the few key tenets of like, all right, if you had to bestow quickly upon somebody what the core tenets of the black swan way are? Yeah. You know, let the other side go first. Um, and then... You know, the cliche, the other side's got to talk five times as much as you. Not twice as much, five times as much. It doesn't mean that you go, uh, that you go mute. You drop in occasionally. You let the other person know that whatever they're thinking is, it's okay to share it. Like, one of our favorite things, you got to have some go-to labels. Go to labels? Yeah, label is one of our negotiation techniques. Seems like, sounds like, looks like, feels like. No matter what anybody says, you can say, seems like you had a reason for saying that. Like, no matter what they say, I hate you and everything you stand for. Seems like you got a reason for saying that. It's disarming. They'll talk with you about it. I want to do business with you and I want to deal with you right now. Seems like you had a reason for saying that. Well, yeah, here's why I want to do business with you. Um, one, one of my son came up with, again, like, bring a guy. We, you know, we would not be our team without him. Clients call on the phone. Say, how are you today? How are you today is a diagnostic. They want to know if they could talk, if you're in a mood to talk about what they want to talk about. Brandon's response is, seems like you got something on your mind. Yeah, as a matter of fact, you know, because they've been, they've been planning this call. How are you today is not, like, genuinely, how some people really want to know, but most people want to know, are you prepared to listen to what I have on my right. mind? How are you as a temperature check? Are you in a bad mood? Because I'm wasting my time. Are you in a good right. mood? We could talk. And the, the only pushback he ever got on that was he had a guy say, yeah, you know, there's stuff I want to talk about. Really, I want to know how you are today. 
And so Brandon said, yeah, I'm good, you know, we talked about it, and then they got down to business. So, you know, it, the more you encourage the other side to talk, the more likely it is that you're going to get to this moment of collaboration quicker. Never be so sure of what you want that you wouldn't take something better. How do you get something better? You get the other side to talk. You spend a lot less time talking and appreciate that they're bringing something to the table that you could use. The black swan, the tiny little thing that's going to change everything. You trigger that, you're going to make great deals. And I want to know what I'm getting into with you as a business partner because I'm into long-term prosperous relationships, positive-sum games. And if you are not, then even if you throw a lot of money on the table, it's still going to be painful. So are there other tricks that you would employ apart from disarming me with seems like, looks like, feels like? What are the other tricks to conversation you mentioned oprah at the beginning what does oprah winfrey do in her interviews that make her so successful i remember a long long time ago one of my psychology teachers explained to me the, the power of mirroring just repeating what someone says yeah. i don't know whether is that is that part of the negotiator's handbook uh it can be, you know, you get, you gave me two different questions. What does Oprah do and what's part of the negotiator's handbook? So I'm going to okay. go to what, what Oprah does first. Does that make me a bad negotiator right there? <laughs> no, it means it I seems, listen. It seems like you think it does. Uh, <laughs> oh, there's a mislabel. No. <laughs> no, not no? at all. No? Getting people to say no is a good thing. First of all, don't be scared of no. But here's, here's the real key to what oh, Sorry, I can't, let you, I can't let you move on from... Why no is a good... I can't let you move on because we're all taught no is a bad thing. Why is no a yeah. good thing? The, um, the biggest turning point in every negotiator's life is coming to grips with, with what no really is. That, that may have been the single biggest turning point for me. Because like everybody else, getting to yes, you want to hear yes. Yes is the, end of the pot of gold at the end of the rainbow. I mean, you know, we're almost hypnotized to believe that, yes, when you hear yes, the heavens part, the angels sing, the birds chirp, you know, you, you, people bring you food, they're fanning you, you know, everything, right? Hearing it. But uh, so the turning point for me was I read a book called Start With No Jim Camp 2002. I'm passing a book in an airport bookstore, and I, I, I literally do a double take. I'm like, what? Start with no? You're supposed to get yes. How do you start with no? And Camp was like, in order to free people up, just tell them it's okay to say no. He called it the right to veto. And his negotiation style was to start out with by saying, like, look, you can say no to me at any time. I just want you to know I'm not here to try to back you into the corner yes. Anytime you want, say no, I'll get up and move away. I'll be gone. And his approach was that preserves the other person's autonomy. And he literally says in his book, people will die for their autonomy. And I'm, and I'm reading it. And I'm going like, no kidding. That's why we have hostage negotiators in the first place. We had SWAT teams. We didn't have negotiators. We just surround their house and tell them to come out or get killed, which was taking away their autonomy. 
And law enforcement globally were killing people who would rather die than give up their autonomy. They were caught, you know, they'd come out guns blazing. But after a while, we'd be like, all right, so we know this dude came out shooting at us. But he was just some poor slob that had too much to drink and got upset and mad at his wife. And she called him names and ran out. Did this guy deserve to die because he drank too much and he was unhappy? Yeah, you know, it was a legally justified killing. But morally, is there a better way to approach this? And we thought, what if we pay somebody to maybe ask them nice? <laughs> and that was kind of how it was all born. But is there something about saying no as well? Like, I'm, I'm thinking about a, a recent negotiation I had with my 11-year-old son, Chris. And he was asking me about something that I felt uncomfortable with. Right. And when I said no to him, when uh, his request, it gave me a, a sense of safety. And then I felt like we could negotiate from there on. We could find a, a middle ground. One of the biggest surprises that I took really to heart in the book was getting to know yeah. first. Where we're so wired, I mean, we're completely wired for the opposite. For example, on a recruiting call, if I call a typical agent, you know, who doesn't know who I am, I may say, hey, you know, Chris, this is Alex Vidal with Related ISU, blah, blah, blah. How are you doing today? By the way, I see you're a great agent. I was calling to see if you would be interested in learning more about my company. And the typical answer is, no, I'm happy where I'm at. It's a 30-second call. Right. I read your book. I sit down with my leadership team. And I say, guys, I want to try something different. Just, just hang out. I'm going to put it on speaker. So I call Chris. And now Chris answers the phone. And I say, hey, Chris, this is Alex Vidal with Related as International Realty. How are you doing today? Oh, I'm doing great. How are you? I'm like, oh, man, I'm doing great. I already know you're a great agent. Just the fact that you even picked up your phone to begin with. They start laughing, you know, because realtors in South Florida never answer their phone. So then I follow up and go, let me ask you a question. Do you want to make less money this year than you did last year? And they say, no. And I'm like, no? No, of course not. Of course I want to make more money this year than I did last year. Oh, it sounds like you want to make this your best year ever. I do. Well, that's why I was calling. I want to show you how my brokerage can help make that happen for you. And I got the no right away. And then you got the no out of the way. And I followed it up with, you know, the, the mirroring and the labeling and all that. And it was very interesting. My average recruiting call went from 30 seconds to 10 minutes. Wow. And just using that opening line, and I don't care. I'll share it with my competitors. I, I really, it doesn't really bother me. They're just spewing out information, literally using the mirroring and the labeling. What is it about people's need to want to say no and what are the benefits of getting that no out of the way first? Yeah, you know, um, we're conditioned. There's some conditioning out there that, that we got to recognize. It's just true. Yep. So we've gotten conditioned that every time we say yes, somebody's trying to lead us into a trap. Somebody's trying to get us to say yes. You know, the uh, momentum selling says each yes is a tie down. A tie down takes away our autonomy, a basic human driver of what we are as human beings, not what we are as males or females, not what we are as Westerners, is human beings. And this is about human wiring. You can't point to a, a civilization in the history of mankind that was content as slaves. It's driven us since we crawled out of the swamps. So these tie-downs take away our autonomy and immediately begin to diminish rapport as we take away somebody's autonomy. And so we've been conditioned that if somebody's trying to get us to say yes, we're under attack. We've also conditioned ourselves as 
when we say no, we've just protected ourselves. We've just done something to preserve our autonomy. We're safer every time we say no, which is why so many people's default answer is no, not because they thought it through, but they've conditioned themselves, which means they feel safe when they say no. There's a neurochemical response. Sure. The chemicals that you feel when you say no make you feel safe and secure. Consequently, you're more willing to listen. Your guard's not up. You've protected yourself. So you start out with that question right away where somebody says no, then they've just gotten a hit of all the chemicals that make them feel safe. And now they're willing to talk to you. And then you've got a, you've got a, your, uh, your follow-on moves are all designed to make them feel heard. Like you're interacting with them instead of against them. I mean, it sounds like you like to make more money. That was based on their response. You instantly prepare yourself to go into a collaborative conversation. Again, they're not threatened. They're not being attacked. They're not under siege. And now it's, it's, I'm not the least bit surprised that you're going from 30-second calls to 10-minute calls because as soon as you preserve the other side's autonomy, now they can talk to you candidly. Plus, you're different than all the other bozos out there that are trying to get them to say yes. That's it. And, and you have a, the, the typical answer is, well, I'm happy where I'm at. Oh, it sounds like they take really good care of you. Yeah, they do. Awesome. What is it that they, they take? You know, maybe I can learn something about I can do in my company. What is it that they do to take care of you? And then you start finding all these holes, and then the wall just keeps coming down. We had a conversion rate of 75% from calls to appointments. It was, it was un, unbelievable. And that's why I believe so much in the book. I, I read a lot of books, but very few make an, a direct, immediate impact the way, the way yours did. Just curious, um, so you got to a conversion rate of 75%. What, what roughly were you doing before that? Oh, probably we would get maybe one out of maybe every six seven, eight calls, maybe we'd get an appointment. Wow. And then those appointments had to show up. The, the fact was not only were we at a 75% conversion rate, but the, the bond that we had created with those people during that phone call was so good that they actually showed up for the appointment versus, and it, I don't even have questions about the yeses, but we, you, know, you talk about in your book the three types of yeses that we get, uh, that we typically get. Um, and so by spending 10 minutes on the phone with them, we, we actually get the approval action-based yes that moves the, the ball forward not just something to get us off the phone why is no more powerful than yes i think that uh, that that you're what you're referring to is called the yes momentum uh-huh and i think that has been so overused yeah and not only overused but it's also been everybody's been they've been flim flamed they've been bamboozled you know they've been conned by that two or three times mm. the yes battered and then your problem is... They feel like it's a trick or something or some strategy. You're yeah. not a trickster, uh-huh. but you're engaging in the same methodology that the trickster used. Interesting. You know the African phrase, when you're bitten by a snake, you're afraid of ropes. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah. There are a lot of really legitimate people that are not trying to, to flim-flam somebody, but the flim-flam artists use that on them. Mm-hmm. You know, the, uh, the timeshare industry has a, has a very bad reputation. And some of the timeshares are, are clearly very valuable because I know people that have them and are love them. Simultaneously, there are a lot of people out there that are hustling and conning people, and there's a whole industry of, that we've coached some of these people in getting people out of timeshares because they got them on a yes momentum. Mm. Now they got a timeshare that's going to bankrupt them. Now they don't remember exactly how that happened, 
but it was probably this yes momentum. So they weren't conscious of it, but as soon as they hear it again, even from a close trusted friend, they got burned and, and they, they got an instinctively negative reaction to the yes momentum. Interesting. So what's the no, is it no momentum? What's the, what's like, what is this process of getting the no? Well, you know, you're getting a no and you're getting, you're getting the information. You know, uh-huh. no typically triggers um, implementation next steps. Got it. But a no is really a yes. Yeah. It sounds like, would you be against me sharing some interesting ideas for you? No, I'm not against it. Exactly. Okay, cool. Here's the next step. And, and probably if I'd have said, are you against me sharing some interesting ideas for you, your more likely answer is, no, I'm not against it, but I only got 15 minutes. Yeah. Awesome. If I stick to the 15 minutes or less, I got your undivided attention. If I go over 15, you're going to start to get anxious because mm-hmm. you're worried about your clock. Yeah. And, you know, that, that's the secondary thing. Like, um, if we set up an appointment, is it a ridiculous idea for me to take up 13 minutes of your time? <laughs> right. Not, not 10, not 5, but something in between. Right. Now, I know I want 9 minutes. I got I got it timed out. You know, I, I, I call this BDA lines. They're always showing a plate. Uh-huh. They're not getting killed for that anymore. Are they more efficient? No, they just changed the time they said they were going to show up. Uh-huh. You know... You, you, I'm sitting on a tarmac in LAX. Plane can't get, can't get to the gate. We're there 20 minutes early. The airline says, hey, we're here 20 minutes early. We promised an on-time arrival. We're here 20 minutes early. They won't let us get to the gate. And you're sitting there thinking like, this airport is so stupid. This plane is big. They saw it coming. Yeah. They got radar. Yeah. We're not a surprise. <laughs> right, right. Well, point of fact, the, uh, the airport said, you guys show, said you were showing up at 3. We ain't opening up this gate till 3. Now, you're sitting there on the airplane. You're not mad at the airline. You're mad at the airport. But in fact, the airline knew how long they were going to be early. Right. But who gave you back time in your life? Mm-hmm. I call you on the phone. I say, Louis, I need, I need 13 minutes. Uh-huh. You give me 15 because you ain't got 13 on your calendar. I get done at 9. Give and I'm like, time. okay. Yeah. And, and you're sitting there like, holy cow. You just gave me back time in my day. Everybody else is taking it away. Now you mm. love me. Mm. Next time I call, you're picking that phone right yeah. up. He's not going to waste my time. Exactly. Wow. So I like these questions to, to get, would you be against me doing this? Would, are you? Uh, what's another way you could say a no question? It's usually like, is it a ridiculous idea? Are you against? Our phone calls start with, is now a bad time to talk? Mm. Instead of, have you got a few minutes? Right. Because, you know, we're, people feel safe when they say no. They feel safe. You feel, why you feel why safe. is that? Yeah, that's, you know, <laughs> I get, I'm probably because we get flim-flammed over yes. Uh-huh. And we've been flim-flammed so many times that no gives an automatic feeling of protection. Chris, would it be unreasonable for you to tell the story about how you almost killed Jack Welch? <laughs> why? Why no? Somehow I feel compelled to say no. I don't know what it is. Something mystical and magical just came over me because I said no. Yeah, no, I mean, um, I'm in L.A. a number of years ago. I'm still teaching at USC, University of Southern California. And uh, Jack Welch, a book signing in L.A. You know, I'm going through the long line of people signing the books. 
And so what does that mean? By the time you get up to Jack, they're doing everything they can do to keep you from talking to them because they got uh, they got 300 people to get through the line. You stand right. there and chat for five minutes, everybody's there for six hours. So there's a million reasons why they don't want you talking to Jack. Now, I'm going to pitch Jack, and I know I've got the opportunity to say one thing, period, period. I can't even introduce myself. I can't even, I can't do anything. I got, I got time for one sentence. So, you know, I know the magic of getting a no. So I walk up to him. I look him in the eye and I go, is it a ridiculous idea for you to come and speak at the negotiation course that I teach at USC? And, and he, 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 first he looks at me and he kind of gets a little bit of a scowl and he looks up and to the left and he just gets this hideous scowl on his face. He just freezes. Uh, and this was several years ago. Jack Welch, God, God rest his soul. All my experience with him, genuine, decent human being. Um, and he freezes. And he looks furious. And then he doesn't move. And my first thought is, he, he's so angry, he had a stroke and he died. And he's going to fall over dead right in front of me. Because <laughs> he doesn't move. And then, you know, then I think, all right, so he's not dead, but he's furious. And he's going to have him throw me out. But then after what seemed like an eternity, he looks back at me and he says, this is my personal assistant's name. This is a special Twitter account we have set up to communicate with her. I will call her and tell her who you are, what you want. I think we're going to be in Los Angeles in the fall. If we are, we'll come in and speak to your class. So not only did he process it, no, but he thought through the next four or five steps for implementation. And it was done. Boom. It, it went that quickly. So, so I was watching, I was watching your reading. I forget which one it was. First of all, thank you for telling that story because I, I probably listened to it three times and every time I listened to it, I could, cause I, you could see a Jack's face just like, <laughs> right in that moment. And probably his wife next to him, like, you're killing my husband. What the hell is going on here? Um, it's a great example though. So, so many of our clients deal with these situations where they need to ask a better question. Right, something that no one else is asking. Everybody's saying like, "Hey, would you like to know the new value of your house?" Everybody's saying, "Hey, if I can get you a price, would you be willing to X?" Right, like everybody's doing that over and over again. And if you're out there and you're listening, and you're doing that, and you're getting terrific results, just fast forward on this this audio message. Otherwise, listen up. You you once said, I, I want to say there was like four different openings. I think it was to the no question. We you know, is it ridiculous? Would it be unreasonable? Is that the pattern, or were there four specific questions? Well, you know, I I, I think there's there's probably about three or four. Um, you know, if I may, I'll put in an ad for our YouTube channel because I, I know I've got a video up. Uh, the top four no oriented questions. That's what it was. Where yeah. I, where I, I kind of walk through it and and what they are and what's behind them. And and the other thing to do also is. If you just write down, are you against, yeah. you disagree, would it be ridiculous? And then you, you, while you're writing, you're going to think, well, could I say it this way? As long as you're intentionally attempting to trigger a no, yes, you will begin to figure out other great ways of putting it. Now, some of them are context-driven. You know, one of the key ones, which is for restarting conversations with people who have stopped talking with you, is 
have you given up on working with me? Love have you given one. up on Love X, Y, or Z? Now, we find like the, not only will the other person respond, but in a ridiculously short period of time. Like that has the highest compliance rate of anything and quick. Like as, as a general rule, like when I send that question, if I'm sending a text, which I, and I know that they're going to see a text right away, hey, you know, have you given up on the project with the Black Swan group? I'm going to sit there and wait. Because they're going to answer within three to five minutes. Now, context, situation, drive, strategy. If this is your opening line, then that question is probably out of context. Good point. Right. And that's a great way for that great question to now create dissonance in me and erode trust. So when I get an opening email, and I know how effective this email is, like, have you given up on taking me on as an intern? Or have you given up on yeah. looking at my website? When I've never gone with these people, and I have never started, I either delete that email, right. or occasionally I'll respond because I suspect that it's somebody I can't trust and they will let me know in their very next response, they'll confirm to me that I can't trust them, that they're trying to take advantage of me. Yeah. And that one is so effective that the people that you can't trust have been picked up, have picked up on it. And, and they're, they're looking for mechanisms, not because they're trying to work with you. They're looking for the hacks to take you to the cleaners. So if you get that question out of context, Wait a minute! I never started with you. How how could I how could I have right. given up? Yeah. It's a bad sign. Yeah, Chris, I'm sitting there thinking, you ever mess with cold callers when they call you? <laughs> could you imagine calling Chris as a cold call? <laughs> I will, you know I will tell you everybody on my team when we get hit with a bad cold calling script, right? We'll take a tr if we got time on our hands. You know, I realize that some poor schmucks probably just starting out. It's a tough job. You know, they're, right. just, they're just doing what the boss told them to do. We'll try to correct them. You know, I'll jump in, and we'll be looking to give a short tutorial. This is, a, you this can, is your lucky day. You're going to get yeah, educated. You know, we, you know, we could tell that, you know, you could tell from the tone of voice. Whereas some kids starting out, somebody trying to make a house payment, somebody in a bad place, and they were just taking whatever work they could get. Right. So I'm like, all right, I'm, I'm gonna give this, I'm gonna give this guy, I'm gonna give this gal, I'm gonna give him a break. They probably won't hear me now, but I'm gonna say something that, that'll get them to reflect back. So if they're learners, when they move on, then they can get better. It's so funny you say that. I'm shout out to Hayden Levine if you're listening right now from Orange County, California, who get this, Chris. He cold calls me at my house. He's working for some silly company. I don't. Know, it was not in the real estate business. And he was so smooth, so authentic, so humble that I was like, tell me more. Like, what, what? And then I, I remember like five minutes into the conversation, literally five minutes in, a cold call. I'm a busy guy. And I'm like, this guy is so good. I'm like, where do you work? Like, he's like, he's like, you know, I told you the company. Said, no, no, no. Where do you live? He's like, oh, I'm in like Fullerton. I'm like, listen to me. I don't know what you get paid. 
but I'm willing to bet I would pay you more. I recruited the guy. He worked for me for five years, crushed it with me, then went into real estate and killed it. So I love that. I love that you would actually take the time. I know everybody's busy, but if you actually took the time to help that person, like that just, that makes my heart sing. Yeah, you know, and, and the word that you used to describe him, which I'm sure is one of the main reasons why you went on, you said the guy was authentic. Yeah. Authentic. Yeah. Yeah. And he was, you know, European accent, European, like, so, so he didn't come across, like, I know a lot of Euros that, you know, Germans, Austrians, eh, 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 right? Like, super intense. And he is, but he was just like, I'm just, you know, letting you know, I'm calling people in your area and I'm not telling you that everybody is signing up for it. I'm just letting you know if this is something you'd be interested in. It was like, and that wasn't even the script, but it was so, it was just so genuine, right? It didn't sound salesy at all, which is why I was so engaged with the guy.